Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. Alrighty, if we have a Bible, let's turn, if we can, to Luke. Oh, sorry, not Luke. Where are we? What series are we doing? John. John, Lord, come quickly in Jesus' name. <laughs> Wonderful morning already. I just uh, felt such a, a victory and celebration as we were worshiping today and just trust that God would continue to, to do that in our hearts this morning. I'm taking a little bit of a risk um, in the way that I'm unpacking this text today. Um, when the risk becomes apparent, some of you might think to yourself, my goodness, Steve, if you call that a risk, you really need to get out a little more and let your hair down. Um, and I'm willing, to, be, I'm willing to, to, you know, to take you up on that offer if, if you think I'm not living a risky enough life. Some of you are probably going to be sitting there thinking, Steve, this is not the way that one should unpack Scripture or apply Scripture in any way. So I want to just kind of get that out there and ask us all, if we can, just to kind of fasten our safety belts, as it were. I feel like God has dropped a word into my heart for us. I, I come prepared every Sunday when I'm preaching to believing that God's given us a word, but I really do believe that, that this is a word that I, I trust is going to encourage and minister to, to all of us. So it's a little bit of a slightly different, different application. The, the risks, let me explain it. The risk I'm simply taking is this. John 15 is a, is a well-known passage, and it's full of very well-known, uh, well-used truths. And uh, Generally, the, the preacher's responsibility is to, is to come with an ability to unpack the teaching of Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to, to minister the application as he so desires. But what I really feel to do this morning is to, is to take this, the teaching and to apply it into a very specific area that I think each one of us, if, not, if we aren't going through it right now, I feel like we have already gone through it, so, or will into the future. So I trust that, uh, that, that that will become apparent as we're going to go through, the, go through the text this morning. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that until Jesus returns, uh, all of creation, including us, is in bondage to decay. Quite a depressing statement that Paul makes. And he's being very dramatic, but essentially what Paul is getting at is without necessarily doing anything bad, things generally get worse. Would you agree with that? Without necessarily having to, to force the issue, without necessarily having to make bad mistakes or bad decisions, generally left to their own devices, things are getting worse. I took my car in for a service two weeks ago. A car that was working perfectly. No red lights, no, no, no warnings on the dash. Things were working fine. Scheduled maintenance drive away after spending $900 on things that I didn't even know the car had, let alone were, were breaking. Just uh, an example of, the, things of that, the fact that things decay. My golf game, for example. Uh, I'm from South Africa, the land of the, the eternal summer. I got to play golf 25 to 30 times a year. Uh, also, Debbie's mom was the captain of one of the most exclusive country clubs in South Africa. Uh, uh, so, you know, free golf games at this wonderful course. Now, it's, I'm lucky if I pray, play three to four times a year. My golf game has deteriorated. Christian used to play the trombone. Yes, he did. Christian used to play the trombone. I guarantee his, drum, his trombone playing skills are not what they used to be because he's just allowed them to decay. <laughs> I think we all agree that the person that we look at in the mirror every morning is probably the most 
stark exhibit of the fact that things are slowly decaying. I played frisbee with my son. I didn't go mountain climbing. I didn't go mountain biking. I played frisbee with my son yesterday and I managed to tweak my knee and now I'm hobbling up and down stairs. And a friend of mine invited me to a retirement symposium. I'm now of that age where I'm being invited to retirement symposiums. That's that's the, the place. That's the place that we're at. Without getting into the sociology or the psychology behind this uh, desire within us all to to want to be free from the bondage of decay, that really is the heart that drives drives the billion-dollar self-improvement industry. All of these self-help products and self-help services, which is now in this this country a billion-dollar industry, is driven by this desire for us to to try and escape death or try to escape the slow process of, of getting old or decaying. And I'm sure you'd all agree, that's what fuels most of the marketing and advertising industry. This general concept that the you that you currently are can and should be a whole bunch better. Paul, uh, uh, sorry, the Bible says uh, in um, Ecclesiastes, I think it is, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that that God has placed eternity in the hearts of everyone. And I think whether we're saved or not, that's the reason why we all are trying to escape this this, sense of decay, trying to get free from the, the frustration of things slowly getting worse. But I think if we're honest, this, this desire for more, this desire, this conviction, this belief that what we currently have isn't it, is, is most heightened in the believer. Because we've seen something of what Jesus is calling us to. We are all experiencing foretastes of heaven. I mean, worship this morning was this incredible moment and this incredible experience of what heaven's going to be like. And all it's done, I certainly hope it's done it in you, but this morning it fueled this desire for, Lord, I want more of this. I, want, I look forward to the day when, when this is all that we get to do, worship in your presence. The times that we have in God's presence and we enjoy the intimacy and the closeness that comes with being in God's presence simply stirs a desire within us to want more. And I think perhaps most significantly, the amazing truth that that the Bible teaches about what it means for a believer to be in Christ, that certainly stirs my heart to say, Lord, I know that to be true, but I want to experience that every single moment of the day. There is this, this stirring in our hearts for more at a very personal level. This 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 conviction, this understanding that there is this unbudded, still-to-be-realized kingdom potential within each of us. And I think this desire for more expresses itself on a kind of, if I can say, a worldview level as well. We want to see the kingdom of, of God invade our city. We want to see the kingdom of God invade our nation. We want to see God's kingdom advanced in all of the earth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, We are all being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Basically what he's saying is within each of us, there is this realization that there is more. And God is moving us on from from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory. And the passage that we're going to look at today says pretty much the same thing, that, that it's God's desire for us, if we are the branches that are attached to the vine, it's God's desire for us to produce fruit. But not just fruit. God wants us to produce much fruit. God wants us to produce fruit that will last. 
And so what I want to do this morning is, is, is not so much focus on, the, on what that degree of glory looks like. What does the fruit look like? Although, as we unpack John 15, we are going to give some characteristics to, to what fruit in God does look like. But what I want to focus on is the season between the bud, which is God's promise, and the fruit, which is the fulfillment of that promise. The corridor between this degree of glory to that degree of glory. And I know, I know, if you've been saved for any length of time, I know you know exactly what that corridor feels like. Sometimes it's the corridor of loneliness. Has God, has God forgotten me? Sometimes it's the corridor of uncertainty. Did I, did I really hear God correctly? Did I... Did I really believe that God wanted to take me from, from where I am to, to, to where he wants me to be? It's a, it's, and, that, and that corridor can be a corridor of, of varying lengths. Sometimes that experience of uncertainty can be just a few days. Sometimes it can be years as we long to see God moving in power in and through our lives. If you've been to our ministry space at 1040, uh, there is a corridor at night, which describes exactly the spiritual experience that many of us go through. If you've, uh, so there, there are times when, when I work there past, past dark, and if you've been there, you'll know it's, it's an older building, and the floors creak, and it can be a little bit creepy at times, because the people above us, the floors are so kind of porous that the people, it sounds like the people above us are in our actual office at times. It sounds like they're walking through the building. And when it gets dark at night, and, and, and the, the only lights that are on are near the front door, and you want to leave out the back door, you know that you have to walk through the corridor from the front door through the children's ministry space, which is a very small dark room, to get to that back door to be able to get out of the building. But the difficulty is you have to turn off the light at the front door. And then there's this kind of, I won't say it's a mad dash, and I, I, I'll be honest, I've never run to the back door, which is about as long as this building is, but quite frequently I make a very fast, brisk walk to the, to the back door. It's, it's unnerving. It, it, feels, it feels very isolated. You realize that you're alone. And, and the problem is you can't turn around and go back to the beginning and turn the lights on. Because you're just back to where you started. You, you have to somehow find, find the conviction, the strength to push through to the end. And when you get to that back door, you can flick on the lights and open the back door. And there's a sense of release and a sense of... <sighs> I know that's a humorous example, but I, I hope that illustrates. I think that illustrates something of that experience of what it's like to move from, from one degree of glory to the next. It, it, it's a lonely experience. It can be an unnerving experience. You can't escape the corridor because all it'll do, it'll take you back to where you began. And you have to find the conviction and the courage in God to push through to the end, to bring, it, bring us to a place of fruitfulness. I want to invite you though, before we get into the text, to find it in you to make this sermon particularly personal. The fruitfulness or the next degree of glory can mean many different things for each of us. And I want you, even, if, even in this moment, just to take a couple seconds 
to think about what does, that, what does fruitfulness look like to you? What does that next degree of glory mean to you? Perhaps it's a, it's a, it's a prophetic promise that hasn't yet been fulfilled. Perhaps it's a, a God dream or a God desire that is, that, has been, that is yearning in your hearts and you're trusting to see, to see breakthrough. Maybe it's more of Jesus kind of working in your heart and through your heart. Maybe it's a character issue that God has highlighted that, that you are trusting to see breakthrough in. Maybe it's wanting to see, your nation, see this nation or see your neighborhood impacted for, for God. Whatever that is, what I want to try and answer today is how do we navigate that corridor between where we are and where God wants to take us? How do we, how do we find the courage to, to get to the next degree of glory that God is taking us to? And what this passage is going to teach us this morning is simply this, that to get from where we are to where God wants us to be, we need to know that Jesus is a God of abounding faithfulness and endless love. To get from here to there is not so much what we do, but it's coming to that knowledge and conviction that Jesus is a God of abounding faithfulness and endless love. And so let's jump into the text together if we can. The first four verses of John chapter 15, I believe, I think, Jesus is setting up the big picture. He's, he's answering the big picture question, which we have been looking at throughout this particular series. Throughout the book of John, the standard question that is asked in its various shapes and forms is this question, who is Jesus? It's asked by the Jews in John chapter 6. They say, surely this, speaking of Jesus, is the prophet who has come into the world. The non-Jews ask the same question. Do you remember John chapter 4 when the woman at the well says to Jesus, I know that when the Christ comes, he will explain everything to us. Religious leaders were asking the question. Do you remember John chapter 3? Nicodemus says to Jesus, Jesus, we know that you are a teacher a rabbi, a good rabbi, a good teacher who has come from God. And we're going to see over the Easter weekend, even secular leaders are asking the same question. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of, his Jew? are, are you the, king of the Jews? Even his own disciples are wrestling with this question as to who Jesus is. In John chapter 14, which is what James taught on last week, they ask him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. To which Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes through to the Father but through me. John is absolutely determined to answer the question as to who is Jesus by showing us that he's not just a rabbi or a, or a prophet or, or the king of the Jews for that particular time in history. But he is the, the king of the universe, the king of all the earth. And that, as Psalm 103 says, he's established his throne in, in the heavens and his kingdom reigns and rules over all things. And so in the first verse of, of, of John chapter 15, Jesus again is answering the question, who are you? And he starts off and he says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will, it will be even more fruitful. 
You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. That word is also abide. Some translations speak about abiding. We're going to come back to that. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus starts off, he says, I am the true vine. Israel throughout the Old Testament is often referred to in picture language as a vine. And so what Jesus is actually saying is he's saying the way to, to become part of the people of God is now no longer wrapped up in, in, the, in, in whether you were born into the right culture. It's now no longer wrapped up into, in, in whether you've obeyed certain cultural or religious laws and legal systems. He's saying, I am the true vine. I am the way to the Father. In John chapter 10, he emphasizes the same point. He says, I am not only the good shepherd, but I am the gate. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way to access the Father. What he's emphasizing is something he's been teaching all along. Salvation is no longer through a, through a work of the flesh. It's a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the gardener. And that's why he goes on to say, not only I am the true vine, but my father is the gardener. The father, God the father is, is watching over his son. God the father is working with his son to ensure that they achieve their, their, their common goal, which is releasing kingdom life, releasing the life and the joy and the liberty and the freedom that comes from heaven. They're working together to ensure that happens. And since Jesus is the vine, he alone is the way that we find life. He alone is the source of, of true life. Think of a, of, a, of a natural vine or a natural tree. It's the stem is the, is the, is the part of the tree that, that, that roots itself in the soil. And the branches can only draw nutrients from the soil if they're attached to the stem because it's the stem that draws life from the ground. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Therefore, if any branch is dead, if any branch is unfruitful, it's not because they need to reach down into the soil. It's because they're not attached to the vine. And that's why Jesus says in verse 2, the gardener or the father cuts off any branch in me that bears no fruit. I don't want to get distracted by that statement, but simply to say Jesus is not talking about the loss of salvation. He's not talking about the fact that if you suddenly go through a season of unfruitfulness, which we all do, we all go through winters, God is going to suddenly cut you off. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that there are some branches which, which look like they're attached to the vine, but they're not attached at all. They're not producing any fruit at all. Surely in the context of, of, of John 15, in, in, if you remember, John 13 to John 17 are described the 24 hours prior to Jesus' uh, death. Just a few hours earlier in John 13, Jesus was washing his disciples' feet. And he was talking about Judas, the one who, who hadn't even been cleansed by the word of God. Surely Jesus must be referring to Judas in this instance saying that Judas is like those people who, who haven't even received the word of God. That's what he's saying. So how do we enjoy true life and produce abundant fruit? Look at verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. I think verse 5 is the start of a, of a different tack. Jesus has, has kind of given us the basic teaching from John 15. He's, he's unpacked the basic truth. The truth is that is Jesus is the vine, 
and, and that God's desire for each of us is to, is to produce fruit, much fruit and fruit that are lost. And that is only possible if we attach ourselves to the vine. And now what Jesus does in verse 5 throughout the rest of the section through the end of verse 17, I think Jesus takes, takes it to a whole nother level. He wants to kind of bury down into our hearts. He wants to get incredibly practical and make sure that we are able to apply the teaching in, the very, in, our, in our lives. Notice, if you can, in verse, 50, in verse 5, same, similar structure to verse 1, but now he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He's not talking about him and the Father. He's now talking about him and us. He's now getting very practical. I am the vine. You are the branches. Read with me if you can. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I'm not going to preach on that verse, but can I say that is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Let me read it again. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be mature or complete. Man, maybe some homework for you to do. Go meditate on that verse for a couple of days. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that'll last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. And so what I want to do for the last kind of 10 minutes is just ask and answer three very basic questions that will hopefully speak to us as we consider what it means to go from where we are to, to where God wants, us, wants to take us. From, from this degree of glory to, to that degree of glory. From, from potential, from bud, from promise to fulfillment. How do we, what, what are some of the things that we can learn? Very practical. First question to ask, why should we expect fruitfulness? Why should we expect fruitfulness? How can we be sure that more is part of our future? How can we be sure that God even wants us to grow? Can we be sure of that? Or is this just our wishful thinking? No, I want to say it is God's plan and it is God's heart for us all to grow and to be fruitful um, in Him. Look at verse 5. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is not just a relationship of influence, like a, like a boss has influence over his employee or a, or, a, or a teacher has influence over his or her students or a parent having influence over their child. This is not just that relationship of influence. This is a, a relationship of, 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 of intermingling, of interdependence, of, of change and, and, and transformation taking place in the very depths of our heart, not because God is, 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 is imposing himself upon us, but because God is getting into our very hearts. Do you remember, as I've been teaching my part in this series, I've often focused on the word know. You will know, if you know me, you will know the Father. And that, that word know is not just intellectual knowledge that we, that we get through study. It's not just knowledge that we, we attain through hearing or knowledge that we attain by observation. But it's, it's knowledge that, that, that gets into our very heart because we've experienced something. It's changed us and it's transformed us. There's a fascinating verse in John chapter 10 where, where Jesus says, I, will, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. It's a fascinating verse because the word know, when Jesus says, I know my sheep, is that same word of I know my sheep so intimately. Friends, think of that. God knows your intimate details. God knows the full extent of your sheepness, if I can use that phrase. God knows the full extent of who you are, and yet he still loves us. I know my sheep, and my sheep Know me. My sheep are transformed, are changed because, because my very life has got into their hearts. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Do you remember the, the, the natural picture of the vine and the branches? Where does the nutrients come from? It, it comes from the vine drawing life from the soil and giving it to the branches. Friends, Jesus is rooted in the very center of heaven if there is such a place. Jesus is, is, is rooted in the very Godhead, the very life, divine life of God. Jesus is drawing from and it's coming up the vine and it's being imparted to us because we are attached to the vine. It's not just Jesus giving us a couple of scriptures to make us feel warm and fuzzy. It's the life of God stirring in our hearts. It's the life of God pulsating through our hearts. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, basically emphasizing the same truth that, that God is transforming us by his very nature. 2 Peter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Do you see that? God wants us to participate in his very nature, the very divine nature that, that, that is Jesus. God is saying you can participate in that if you are attached to the vine, escaping the corruption of the world. You see, friends, we do get to escape the, 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 the decay that is upon the world. We do get to be free from the bondage to decay because we are attached to Jesus. This body will waste away eventually, but this, this body is not who I am. Who I am is rooted in Christ. Who I am is seated at the right hand of the Father. Who I am is one day going to experience that in its fullness, and I can experience it even now. Because Jesus is the vine. 
and I am the branches. Can we expect fruitfulness and trustful more? I want to say absolutely. Because Jesus is the vine and is giving us his, his life. Heaven has, has, is, is invading our hearts and transforming us from within. Second question, what does fruitfulness look like? And for the sake of time, I'm going to have to be super quick on this one. What does fruitfulness look like? Fruitfulness looks like, like different things for, for each of us. But no matter what specifically God is wanting to, to bring into you, fruitfulness in your life, no matter in, in what way God wants to take you from here to there, I think that it comes with certain common characteristics. Simply because if we're, if we're allowing things to grow in our lives, it comes with divine nature. It comes with the heart of heaven. And so I want to just give you a few little examples of what, does, what, what are the characteristics of more in God that I found in the text. Number one, I've got five of them. Number one, verse seven, you can see that fruitfulness comes with powerful and effective prayer. Look at verse seven with me. If you remain in me, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you remain in me, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. How, how is that possible? Quite simply, because if we are attached to the vine, we start to, to receive Jesus' heart. We start to receive Jesus' passions. We start to receive Jesus' desires. And our prayers start to line up with the very things that Jesus wants. And I want to ask you a question. How many times has God turned down one of Jesus' prayers? Never. That's why he's saying, listen, when you start to catch my heart, you'll start to ask the things that are burning on my heart, and God never says no to me. That's in essence what he's saying. It comes with powerful and effective prayer. Uh, fruitfulness in God, secondly, comes, it, 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 it exalts God. Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. God is greatly glorified when you and I start to do his will, and his will is for us to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Fruitfulness, thirdly, comes with obedience to God's word that grows out of love. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Friends, I want to say, obedience doesn't secure our relationship in God. Obedience characterizes our relationship with God. We don't read the scriptures looking like a lawyer. You know, uh, uh, Psalm chapter 1 says, uh, 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 it, it talks about the righteous man. And it says, the righteous man is, is he, you know, he, he produces fruit in season. And it's, he's like a tree planted by the river. And it says, he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. We're not, we're not like a lawyer approaching God's word saying, oh my goodness, let me find the loopholes in the system. We're... we're we're looking, we're, we're searching God's word to find ways that we can apply it in, 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 in even more ways to, 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 to show our love to God. Obedience flows from that place of love. Fruitfulness number four is characterized or comes with joy. I've spoken about this already. Verse 11, I had told you this so that, you, that your joy may be in you, so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. And then lastly, it's characterized, fruitfulness in God is characterized by a love for one another. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Friends, God loves us simply because he loves us, not because we're worthy. 
And if we get that into our hearts, we cannot go around judging other people. God loves us because he loves us. Verse 12 says that. He says, uh, sorry, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And, and the fruitfulness that we begin to display, friends, it's the work of God anyway. So, so that should deal with competitiveness and jealousy right there. When God begins to work in someone, when God, when God begins to manifest his life on someone, it's not because they've necessarily worked hard for it at all. It's because the life of God is flowing through them. That's something for us to celebrate. We love one another. The last question I want to ask and answer, and this is kind of the, the crux of the message. And you might think, well, why are you saving this right till the end? Because really, theoretically, it's a simple truth. It's a simple truth. The question is this, what do we do between the promise and the fruit? How do we navigate that corridor of uncertainty between where we are and where God wants us to be? And the answer is this, we remain in Jesus. We remain in Jesus. 11 times in those 17 verses, Jesus reminds us that we are to abide in him or that we are to remain in him. Just like the branch is attached to the vine, he says, abide in me. But he takes it one step further. He actually gets very practical and he breaks, he breaks up what it means to abide into two parts. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse seven with me. Firstly, he says, remain in my word. Remain in my word. Friends, what Jesus is simply saying is we have to get this word into our hearts. It's not just the scriptures, but can I say it includes the scriptures. Don't just think that we can get God's word by listening to him speak to us prophetically, which is a vital and necessary aspect of getting God's word into us. But can I say it includes that, but it also includes getting this into us. It includes digesting this and finding a way, as Colossians chapter 3.16 says, let the word of God dwell richly in your heart. When the word of God is in us, we can do the very thing that James preached on last week, John 14. Jesus says, believe in me. We can only believe that Jesus is able to do what he promised when we know what he's promised us. Sometimes the devil opposes us, Ephesians chapter 6 says. And what is Paul's answer to the opposition of the devil? Stand. Take your stand. Stand firm on the word of God with the, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Stand your ground. Sometimes that's what's required in, in, in opposition and fighting the devil. Not just shouting at the devil, but standing on the word of God. I think God wants nothing more than for us to trust him. And this word, bless you, whatever that was, bless you. Uh, uh, and this word repeatedly shows that God is faithful. He has shown himself over and over again that he is faithful. Friends, I ask you today. If you don't do it now, take some time this week to cast your mind back on times when God has been faithful to you. Because as he's been faithful to you in the past, he is faithful to you now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not faithful in some seasons and not faithful in others. He wants us to know when we go through that corridor of uncertainty, God wants us to know that he is the God of abounding faithfulness. That this word is true. And this word can be believed because this word is Jesus. 
And Jesus is faithful. These are not just words, friends. This is a person. Have you ever had that experience when you read God's word? It feels like someone is looking over your shoulder. That someone is the person of Jesus Christ. That someone is with you as you get this word into your heart. You're not getting a, 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 a list of rules. You're getting a person coming more and more alive in your heart. Not because he's less alive, but because our eyes are open to the reality of who he is. Secondly, in verse 10, not just remain in his word, but secondly, remain in his love. Remain in his love. Friends, can I, if there's one thing you take home today, take this home. At the moment you were saved, at the moment you received Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior, at that moment, the, the, the incredible perfection and righteousness of Jesus was credited to your account. And God, in that same instant, removed all of your sin and, 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 and just wrong desires and, and replaced them with the righteousness of Jesus. At that moment, God loved you just like he loves his son. God sees you just like he sees his son. And friends, this is the truth I want you to take home. That doesn't change. There are no degrees of love from God. You are not more loved five years later than the day you were saved. You are not less loved five years later because you've had a difficult five years and you may have slipped away from God. When the moment you receive Jesus into your heart, God loves you just like he loves his son. And I say that to say, friends, that's what we need to remind ourselves of because that's how we abide or remain in his love. When you are going through that corridor of uncertainty, friends, God loves you just as much then as he did the day you were saved. When you come out and you find fruitfulness and you add another degree of glory, God doesn't love you anymore. Don't think that you are more loved than somebody else because you're living in fruitfulness. No, don't think you're less loved because you're struggling through a difficult season. God's love is consistent. We need to remind ourselves of that. Tell, tell, tell us again, Lord. Every day we come for worship. I've said this before. Every Sunday we come together to worship. We should be crying out to God, God, remind me of your love. Remind me of how much you love me. Remind me of the extent of your love. The fact that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. Every time we open this word, we should be saying, God, invade my heart once again with your love. I know you did it yesterday, Lord, but just do it again, please. God doesn't grow tired of that. Do you think God is a God who gets frustrated because Vanessa keeps asking him to reveal his? No, God delights in that. I'm happy, God. I believe God says, I can't say, but I believe God says, I'm happy to, to display my love over and over and over again. That's how we abide. In the love of God. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through that corridor of uncertainty. Maybe you're here today and you know exactly what I mean when I say you find yourself not here and you're not there, but you're somewhere in between, trying to navigate your way through from one degree of glory to the next, trying to find your way from, from, the, from the promise to, to, to fruitfulness, maybe a desire or a dream that is, that is yet to be fulfilled. Maybe you're in that place of like, Lord, do you, do you really love me? Or, or, or Lord, I, I'm feeling insecure. I, I need faith for this. I need faith for this. I need to be able to be reminded of the fact that you are faithful. I, I need to be strengthened by the reality of your love. If that's you today, I'm going to ask you right now to be very brave. And I want you to stand right now. 
If you're saying, Steve, I'm in that journey. I'm, I'm walking along that corridor between where I, where I am and where God wants me to be. There could be different things for different people, but right now I want to ask you to stand. And as you do that, we just, I just want to take a few moments to pray for you, and then Chris and I are going to try and administrate what to do from here. So Lord, I just pray. Can I ask you just to receive, just open up your heart, just to begin to receive. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name, as people across this room are standing, Lord God, in different places, in different journeys, kind of walk, finding their way from where they are right now, Lord, to where you want to take them. I pray in Jesus' name for, for strength. I pray in Jesus' name perhaps more than anything, Lord, just for you to invade them and, and, and fill them with your love. Lord, Lord help them to, to know the extent of your goodness and your love. When, when questions maybe, Lord God, have, have caused them to wonder, I pray those questions would just be silenced in Jesus' name and the certainty of your love would just invade their hearts. Lord, I pray right now just for a release of your love and of your grace and of your courage. Remind them even now as they're standing, Lord God, of your incredible faithfulness, that you are faithful. That those promises that, 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 that maybe are just as a little bud on a branch, Lord God, give them a glimpse even now again of what that fruit looks like. Give them the endurance, Lord, to, 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 to continue in you, to continue in your word. Your word says, Lord God, abide in my word, continue in my word, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Lord, I pray they will be set free right now of fear, set free right now of anxiety, set free right now of doubt in Jesus' name. As they abide in your word, may the truth come to set them free in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord.